So good, wasn't it, to uh, hear from Katie? So good, too, to sing about our God's amazing grace. And that's very much our theme again for this morning as we arrive at the midpoint of our New Year teaching series, this journey through the letter to the Colossians that we've called Simple. Of course, there's very little, actually, that is really simple about all that the Apostle Paul has to say. And yet my sense is if we can grasp even just an inch of what Paul is saying and apply it to our lives, then the transformational change that can happen in our lives is immense. Today we're thinking about spirituality made simple. And our message is going to be anchored in verses 6 through to 15 of chapter 2. So let's uh, read at least the beginning part of that together. And I'd encourage you to keep your finger in the text um, when we get to the end of what I'm going to read so that we can come back to it in a few moments. So chapter 2 from verse 6 says this, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Well, let's pause there for a moment. But as I say, please do keep your finger in the text. Well, what you might not have realized up to this point is that for the last four weeks in our sermon series, we've been looking at one huge, long sentence of scripture, which was designed by the Apostle Paul to introduce us to the person of Jesus. In the original Greek, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 5, is one huge, long, and incredibly complicated sentence. Of course, in an English exam, Paul would have been heavily penalized for his lack of punctuation, but in Greek, such lengthy sentences were celebrated. Can you imagine Paul trying to write a tweet nowadays, limited only to 140 characters? I think he would have had a terrible time. Well, as we arrive today at verse 6 of chapter 2, after 796 words, yes, I did count them, it's been a quiet week, Paul finally uses a full stop. And what comes after that full stop is the answer to a really crucial question about Jesus. And the question is this, is why is Jesus all that we need? Now, Paul goes on to answer this question, and as he does, he he has a kind of cascade of truth. He keeps on dropping in truth after truth after truth, as you'll see. And the first thing we need to think about this morning is Jesus can't be overestimated or understated. As we journey deeper into this letter, we get to the very heart of why Paul was writing it. He's arguing, look, if you forget about how truly amazing Jesus is, then you're very likely to fall into the trap of pursuing truth, small t truth, in sources other than Jesus. And Paul gives an example. We heard it in verse 8. He says, watch out for the trap of hollow and deceptive philosophies. That's just one trap we can fall into if we deny Jesus or minimize Jesus. His big idea this morning is so simple. Christ can't be overestimated or um, overstated. And he goes on to explain why. 
Well, at the time Paul was writing this letter, he's writing to a fledgling church that's situated in the middle of a pagan world that's full of demigods who supposedly became divine around the time of their death. You can appreciate it was a muddled, it was a confused, complicated spiritual world where these demigods were to a penny. Now, of course, for many people, Jesus was just another demigod which they could choose amongst the countless others. But into that, Paul says, no way, absolutely no. Paul is so keen to stress in our text that Jesus is the long-awaited real deal and that Jesus, far from coming from earthly ideas and traditions, has come from God's. And it's that that makes Jesus different from the rest of these gods or demigods that they claim to exist. Now, try and put yourself in the shoes of these individuals for a moment. You can understand their confusion, can't you, living in such a world? They couldn't tell the difference from truth and fiction. The people of Colossae were confronted with a smorgasbord of spirituality that was laid out before them. If you like, it was a spiritual buffet. But they had absolutely no idea, or at least little idea, what tasted good and what was way past its sell-by date. And so in this letter, Paul states about as clearly as he possibly can that Jesus is the real thing, that Jesus is all those things that we've been singing about in our worship songs already, the name above every other name. But Paul is also saying, look, if you want to find the true God and not some half-baked demigod, then you need look no further than Jesus himself. And by the way, says Paul, this is the Jesus who you've already trusted and accepted. You already know him. The Colossians' problem was that in their topsy-turvy theology, they were making big that that should be small, and they were making small that which was rightly big. Paul is saying you don't need to look any further than Jesus because everything of God, verses 9 and 10, everything of God gets expressed in him. Jesus is massive, if you like, and so you can't overestimate him and you can't understate him. In other words, you don't need a telescope, you don't need to get out a microscope, and God forbid you don't need horoscopes to realize the fullness of Jesus Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. Paul says his power extends over everything. That's the message. Listen again to what Paul says in verses 9 to 10. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him, he says, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Well, that's quite a statement, isn't it? The entire fullness of God's nature is in Christ. And then Paul says, listen to these words, you have been filled by him. We'll hold on to those thoughts for just a moment. We're going to come back to them in a second. This morning, what we discover is spirituality made simple in a confusing world. In summary, if we have Jesus, then that's enough. Everything else in life is just extra gravy. Jesus is the name above every other name, and he fills us. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above me, Christ around me. But too, Paul says, Christ within me. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We've got to slip that equation in every single Sunday. Now, you can tell that Paul has just finished this huge sentence I spoke about because between verses five and six, he takes a pause for breath. 
And as he pauses for breath, his first word is therefore or so then, as the NIV translates it. Therefore, since we have the creator and the savior of the universe in our lives, which was his point in that long sentence before the full stop, therefore, all of our life should orbit around Jesus. Paul says that's how you began and that's how you should continue. In verse six, Paul says, therefore, so then as you received Christ. Well, in the Greek, as you received is a a really technical phrase. It means receiving a body of truth that's been handed down to you. And it means holding tightly to it and making sure that that truth isn't changed in any way. In other words, we don't get to play Chinese whispers with this capital T truth of Jesus. We don't get to change it a little bit at a time to, to suit our liking. Well, if ever you've played the game Chinese Whispers, then you'll know how it happens. It happens all the time with our children. They deliberately change the message normally to make the message more amusing. And Paul is saying, don't do that with Jesus. The message of Jesus is capital T truth and capital T truth does not require embellishment or bells or whistles or knobs to be added to it. It's good enough and it can stand on its own two feet. Paul is suggesting here that the Christian faith is not a matter of self-discovery or about inventing new things all the time, but actually it's about holding on to an unchanging truth that we found in Christ. As Paul continues this cascade of truth, he goes on to say even more than this as you read on into verse 6. He's saying not only are we to hold on to this truth about Jesus tightly, but also we're to walk in that truth as well. He says, as you began, that was in Jesus, continue in Jesus. As you began, continue. So the Christian life is about holding on to the truth about Jesus and not changing it. But two, it's about living our day-to-day lives based on that truth that we've discovered about him. From next weekend, you'll see as we get into Colossians chapter 3, Paul transitions from praying mode to preaching mode, which is the mode he's currently in, into full-blown application mode. Paul in chapter 3 goes on to explain how this truth that we learn about in chapters 1 and 2 changes the way, or at least ought to change the way we live our everyday lives. He's effectively saying truth must be applied. Truth without application is dead. And Paul will go on to talk about how Jesus changes materialism and sexuality and marriage and anger and work and parenting. More on those themes to come in the weeks ahead. But for now, here in chapter two, his point is that the Christian life is all about Jesus. It's about holding on to the truth of Jesus and then letting that truth change the way we live in the everyday. As you began, when you first came to faith, continue. As you began with that historic event, continue past and present is for Paul's uh, message here. But the cascade of truth continues. He doesn't stop there. Paul goes on in verse 7 to paint what I think is such a helpful word picture. He says, since our lives are about Jesus, we must become deeper rooted in Jesus. The picture here is of a, a tree sinking its roots deep, deep into the soil, Why? So that it can grow stronger, but two, so that it can withstand the storms of life. What's true of trees is true of us as individuals. If ever you've seen a tree with shallow roots in a storm, it's likely to be blown over. 
And Paul is saying here that's true of us in our Christian walks as well. If our roots are shallow with Jesus rather than deep, then we don't stand a chance of surviving in the storms. Paul is saying if you want to avoid a midlife Christ crisis, then develop a really good, deep, strong root system in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means that we're to take the very basic truths of who Jesus is, we're to recognize all that Jesus has done for us, we're to recognize who we are in Jesus, and we're to anchor those truths deep into our lives. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah expresses, I think, in one of the most beautiful analogies that's captured in the Old Testament, an image. And in this image, he's comparing the faith-filled person with a strong and a flourishing tree. It's the same kind of image that Paul is looking at. Jeremiah says, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a drought. A Christian with deep roots roots in, in Christ is blessed. They're not fearing. They're not worrying. They're always bearing fruit. Well, one of the best ways, of course, to root ourselves deeply in Jesus is to root ourselves in the word of God as it's revealed to us in Scripture. How about trying to memorize a few familiar Bible verses about who Christ is, but too about what Christ has done for us? Scripture, of course, is full of those truths. And the challenge, perhaps, is to read them, to apply them and to live them out, but mostly to believe them, not just in our heads, but to in our hearts. One such place we started with this morning in Colossians chapter 1 from verse 15. It's all there. It tells you who Christ is, but it tells you too who we are in Christ Jesus. Paul says there, you once were this, but now because of Jesus, you've become this. I would encourage you to allow the truth of God's word to settle deeply within you. That's how our roots will go deeper in Jesus. But Paul goes on yet again and he says there's a goal to all of this. There's a goal to having deep roots in Jesus, which is that we should become established in the faith. The word established here literally means settled or packed down or sunken in. Picture the image of a tree that's just been planted and someone has dug a deep hole to put the roots deep, but then they've stamped all around the outside to really compact the soil in. Established, settled, packed in, sunken in. And if that's our experience in Christ, then there will be fruit, there will be results of that over time. And Paul mentions a few of them here, although I think there are more he could have mentioned. He speaks in verse 7 about a heart that will be overflowing with thankfulness. If our roots are deep in Jesus, then there'll be an attitude of gratitude. Verse 8, he speaks about that ability to discern right from wrong, to avoid being taken captive by hollow philosophies and deceptive philosophies, which promise the earth and in truth deliver absolutely nothing. But two in verses 9 to 10, Paul says that when we're established in Jesus, we get filled up by him and we get filled up with him. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, verses 9 and 10 are truly mind-blowing if we can begin to get our heads around them. They say this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every, over every power and authority. You see, these verses, verses 9 and 10, are the promise of incredible stuff. 
Paul is saying there, the, the God who dwelled at Mount Sinai with fire and smoke, the God who dwelled in the tabernacle in the wilderness, the God who then resided in the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple now dwells in the person of Jesus. God has left the cloud. God has left the tent. God has vacated the temple. And Paul says, verse 9, you will find God fully expressed in the person of Jesus. But then he goes on to say, by the way, Jesus, this Jesus lives in you. Well, what are the implications of all of this for us? Well, it means that since God dwells completely in Jesus, why would anyone ever go to anybody else to explore the things of faith or to discover God without Jesus? What all of this means is that God is not expressed 75% in Jesus and 25% somewhere else. We don't have to go on some massive treasure hunt to find the remainder. In Christ, we already hold the treasure of treasures. No wonder Paul was so keen to say, as you began, would you continue? You began with treasure, continue with this treasure. All of God, 100% is expressed in Jesus. And that's why we can sing out as we did. He, He has no rival. He has no equal. He is the name above every other name. His is the kingdom and his is the glory. Now, what makes all of this even more amazing is not only that God lives in Jesus, but too, Paul says, Jesus lives in us. And if Jesus lives in us, then it's full of promise. It means that we've been raised and we've been filled by Jesus. By his spirit, Jesus now generously and constantly pours himself into us so that we can always be full of him. Now, of course, we leak. Yes, we do. So we need to constantly be refilled with the spirit of God. But what Paul is saying here is because of that, we have everything that we need in Jesus. Since Jesus is fully God and since Jesus fills us, the idea here is that we don't need anyone else or anything else because Jesus is all sufficient. The idea that we need an intermediary to pray to God outside of Jesus simply can't be true. We have Jesus and Jesus completely fills us. Paul says that so clearly in another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He phrases it as as a question. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? I wonder if we can even begin to grasp this truth that Jesus lives within us, that we now are God's temple. Because if we can start to grasp that truth, it will truly change what we think about ourselves. But even more than that, it's a promise too of all that's to come. Paul says the same power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also raise you from the dead. There's an amazing promise here for us. Now, for many of us, as we think about ourselves and our identity, our identity is found in the work that we do, past or present. But as Christians, our economic group, our social group, our friendship group is not our identity. Jesus is our identity. Paul is saying that's what really matters. All of God lives in Jesus and Jesus completely fills us. And God promises that he's working out a miracle in us that will go on for the whole of eternity. The one who created the universe went on to conquer death itself by living in some mind-blowing mystery uh, within us after he was raised from the dead. What does all of that mean? It means I can lose my job. I can lose my identity here at Christ Church Baptist Church. 
It means I can cease to be a father, I can cease to be a husband, and I can still have an even greater identity in the risen Jesus. You see, in Christ, my identity is greater than what I do or who I am. It's in the fact that the one who created the universe loves me and is inside of me and has promised me eternal life. That's where my identity is really found. Now, Paul goes on to explain why our identity being in Jesus and all that God has done for us is such a big deal. And he answers the question, well, what happens when we're filled by Jesus? And this is in verses 11 to 15. So do return to the text if you've still got it open. Paul goes on to say this, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So what does it mean to have Christ filling us? Well, Paul says what it means is that if we're in Christ, then we have literally participated in the events that happened in the cross. We get to receive all the same benefits that Christ has uh, has secured for us. When we die with him, when we're buried with him, when we're resurrected, we literally have participated in all of those events. When we're filled with Jesus and we come into a relationship with Jesus, Paul says we die to our former way of life. In a sense, our old way of living has been taken away. It's dead and it's been buried. And then there's new life, there's resurrection. We can say that we're born again with an eternal promise. And Paul makes the link here, doesn't he, to baptism. And perhaps that's not surprising. He's using the symbolism of baptism to say, this is your way of identifying with all that Christ went through and all that Christ has secured for you. Christ died, Christ was buried, but Christ rose again to new life. And we symbolize that in our baptism. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is exactly the same power that transforms us and changes us and in fact fills us when we've come to faith in Jesus. It's no wonder we can say that we're a new creation. And what are the results of all that? Well, Paul paints it pretty clearly here, but in other places as well, I'd encourage you to to read through Romans chapter 6, for example. Paul says the, the result of all that is freedom. Your chains are gone and your heart is free if you're with Jesus Christ. As a Christian, because we died with Christ and we rose with Christ, the power of Christ is at work within us. And that power is more powerful than the power of sin that's against us. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. In Christ, Paul is saying here, you're completely forgiven. You're eternally free. And Paul expresses that so powerfully, doesn't he, here in our text. But he goes on to say there's even more to it than that. In verse 15, Paul says that when Jesus died, actually he triumphed over and he proved that he was the name above every other name because he's disarmed every power and every authority that's set up against us. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to shame by triumphing over them. 
picture here for a moment, if you would, which was probably the picture that Paul had in his mind, an army that was following behind a victorious army. And the army that had been conquered actually are stripped naked and they're stripped bare as a way of humiliating them. In a sense, they would stand there with bare feet and with rags, and that's all that's left. The soldiers would march through um, ahead of this conquered army, and the captives would be there in chains in the barest of clothes. Even the most powerful kings and the dignitaries would be part of that procession, half naked, as the conquering army came through the towns and the cities. And Paul's point here is that Satan and all of the demonic powers that fought against us are completely stripped of their power for eternity because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has proven over and over again that he is indeed the name that's above every other name. And in a sense, to really push the analogy, all that's left now is for one day Jesus to lead them through the streets, stripped naked and bare for the final spectacle, the public spectacle of their defeat. Now, I don't know about you, but I think in pictures, and I rather like this image because I imagine my sin actually stripped bare and paraded, not to humiliate me, but actually to show what Jesus has done in my life. And in fact, my sin can be paraded. It can be shown off and it can be put to shame because of the amazing work of Jesus. In Christ, I'm free from all those things that otherwise would disgrace me. God's grace really is amazing, isn't it? Well, as I draw to a close and we prepare ourselves for communion, we started with a question, which is, why is Jesus all that I need? And in this cascade of truth, Paul gives us the answer and shows us how our spirituality really is made simple. After we look at all that we have in Jesus, what else could we possibly want? Jesus has defeated every single demonic spiritual power in the universe. At the name of Jesus, they must flee. That very same Jesus fills our heart. That very same Jesus has forgiven us and has taken all of our sins so that we can know freedom, nailing them to the cross. Jesus has stamped across all of our sins, paid in full by his own blood. Jesus has taken that old nature that was corrupted by sin and he's cut it away and he's given us a new resurrected life in Jesus. Jesus has promised to you and to me, if we know him as Lord and Saviour, eternal life. And as I draw to a close before we transition into communion, I simply want to encourage us this morning to hold on to Jesus to walk with Jesus, to sink our roots deeply into Jesus, to grow in Jesus and to allow ourselves to be filled by Jesus as well. And I simply want to pray that Lord Jesus, you would come, that Lord, you would fill us, that Lord, we would know what it is this day to be filled with your spirit, empowered by you. And Lord, for those of us this day who doubt our salvation, who wonder what this is all about. Lord, I really want to pray today that you would give us some assurances that we would know in Christ Jesus, our eternal hope is secure. In Jesus' name, amen.